The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. La gente venía a él y a él les enseñaba. Y pasando vio a Levi, hijo de Alfeo, sentado en el lugar de los tributos públicos, y le dijo, sígueme. Y levantándose, lo siguió. Sucedió que, estando Jesús sentado a la mesa en casa de Levi, muchos publicanos y pecadores estaban también sentados a la mesa con Jesús y sus discípulos, porque eran muchos y lo habían seguido. Y cuando los escribas de los fariseos lo vieron comer con los pecadores y publicanos, decían a sus discípulos, ¿por qué come con los publicanos y pecadores?, al oírlo, Jesús les dijo, los sanos no tienen necesidad de médico, sino los que están enfermos. No he venido para llamar a los justos, sino a pecadores. Los discípulos de Juan y los fariseos estaban ayunando. Fueron a Jesús y le dijeron, ¿por qué ayunan los discípulos de Juan y los discípulos de los fariseos, pero tus discípulos no ayunan? Jesús les dijo, ¿acaso pueden ayunar? los que están de bodas mientras el novio está con ellos? Entre tanto que tienen al novio con ellos, no pueden ayunar. Pero vendrán días cuando el novio les será quitado. Entonces, en aquel día ayunarán. Nadie pone parche de tela nueva en vestido viejo. De otra manera, el parche nuevo tira de viejo y la rotura se hace peor. Ni nadie echa vino nuevo en odres viejos. De otra manera, el vino rompe los odres, y se pierde el vino y también los odres. Más bien, el vino nuevo se echa en odres nuevos. Aconteció que Jesús pasaba por los sembrados en sábado, y sus discípulos se pusieron a caminar arrancando espigas. Los fariseos le decían, mira, ¿por qué hacen en los sábados lo que no es lícito? Y él les dijo, nunca han leído que hizo David, cuando tuvo necesidad y pasó hambre, él y los que estaban con él. Como entró en la casa de Dios, siendo aviatar sumo sacerdote, y comió los panes de la presencia, y aún dio a los que estaban con él, cosa que no es lícito comer, salvo a los sacerdotes. También les dijo, el sábado fue hecho para el hombre, y no el hombre para el sábado. Así que el Hijo del Hombre es Señor aún del sábado. Entró otra vez en la sinagoga y estaba allí un hombre que tenía la mano paralizada. Y estaban al acecho a ver si lo sanaría en sábado a fin de acusarle. Entonces dijo al hombre que tenía la mano paralizada, ponte de pie en medio. Y a ellos les dijo, es lícito en sábado hacer bien o hacer mal. Salvar la vida o matar. Pero ellos callaban, y mirándolos en derredor con enojo, dolorido por la dureza de, de sus corazones, dijo el hombre, Extendí tu mano, y la extendió, y su mano le fue restaurada. Los fariseos salieron enseguida junto con los herodianos y tomaron consejo contra él de, de cómo destruirlo. You may be seated. 
If you're in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please meet our volunteers over by the Kids Zone sign. And if it's your child's first time, please go with them so we can get you all checked in. Well, good morning. My name is Ben, and I'm on staff here at Restoration, and we're glad you're here with us uh, in person or online uh, as we uh, worship together this morning. Um, we are in the middle and towards the end of uh, Hispanic Heritage Month, which is why you had the passage read in Spanish, um, and Emily did it beautifully, so thank you, Emily. Um, and we um, are really, really grateful to do that as we experience uh, the same faith in many different languages, uh, just as we will on that great day. Uh, well, I'm coming off a, um, a wedding weekend that I was in, um, started Thursday night at 6 and ended last night uh, at 11, so let's, let's talk about rest. I'm sure you have some sentiment of that this week, whatever it may be, whatever you bring in. Um, but one of my favorite movies is Field of Dreams, and it's a mid-80s movie. Uh, Kevin Costner plays this Iowa farmer named Ray Kinsella. And in the beginning scenes of the movie, it's if you haven't seen it, I'm going to ruin part of it. Uh, sorry. Um, in the beginning of the scenes of the movie, Ray Kinsella is in this cornfield in Iowa, and he hears this voice, and it says, If you build it, he will come which is a, a famous line. And he sees this vision of a baseball field in the middle of his cornfield. And what he realizes he's supposed to do is he's supposed to cut down the corn, put a baseball field in with his savings, and these ghosts from the past will come and play at their field. That, that Babe Ruth and, and Shoeless Joe Jackson and so many others will come and play baseball on their field that he makes. And so he does it. And he be continues to hear more and more voices during the movie. And he goes to Boston um, because he's supposed to uh, meet up with this old writer who's played by James Earl Jones. And, and they're going to, they go to fin uh, Fenway Stadium to see the Red Sox. And then they travel back to Iowa. And all of a sudden, uh, they're here in Iowa watching these greats play the game in the middle of a cornfield. And these ghosts of a players would uh, leave the cornfield enter the baseball field, play baseball, and then go back on the cornfield. And so one day before they went back into the cornfield, wherever ghosts go, uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson turns and says, hey, you want to come with us and join us? And James Earl Jones and Ray Kinsella are there. And Ray Kinsella, Kevin and Costner says, really? And Shoeless Joe says, no, 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 not you, him, your friend. And so all of a sudden, having been passed over for this other guy, Ray Kinsella and this ghost of a baseball player have this exchange. Kevin Costner, Ray Kinsella, says this, Wait a second, why him? I built this field. You wouldn't be here if it weren't for me. I've done everything I've been asked to do. I didn't understand it, but I've done it. I haven't once asked what's in it for me. And Shoeless Joe said, What are you saying, Ray? He responded, I'm saying what is in it for me. Shoeless Joe said, is that why you did it? It's for you. Is that why you did everything? Kevin Costner's cut down his, his cash crop. He's traveled around the U.S. And he's done all these things that's asked of him. And when he gets passed over, his, his, his driving question is, what's in it for me? And for Ray, and for you, and myself, 
We construct economies of merit to give ourselves allowance to ask that same question. That you and I uh, create these economies that say, if we can accomplish enough, we will have the allowance and the ability to say to God, what's in it for me? I've done everything you've asked of me. I haven't really understood all of it, but I've done it. I've accomplished it. I'm do something. So what's in it for me? It's so easy to take that question and that premise and transfer it into our spiritual lives with God. And we think, okay, well, if, if we want to be um, where we want to be in life, from where we are to uh, the horizon of what a better life is, we often think we just need to be better people. We need to be a good person. And we, we try to teach our kids that sometimes too. And yet so often in pursuit of being the better person, the good person, we think we've given ourselves allowance to ask, God, I've, I've been a good person, so what's in it for me? And here Jesus is talking to a crowd of people who are saying that question to him, at least in their hearts. They've done everything that's asked of them. They think they're do something. And so they say, what's in it for me? And here, just as uh, Mark does, he paints this picture of Jesus and the kingdom he brings. And we see this morning, uh, Jesus as king, and he offers rest. He offers rest to his people. And he'll confront the idols of rest that we think we have in our own lives. And we'll look at three things this morning. First, we'll look at the elements of true rest. Second, the the enemy of true rest. And third, uh, how to enter true rest. Because all of us are trying to do something to be someone worthy of worth. All of us are doing something to be someone worthy of worth. And yet Jesus enters into that and says, enter my rest. So with that in mind, let's pray as we study God's word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, much of us feel the angst of doing everything that's been asked of us, and we don't always understand it, but we've done it. And yet, Lord, we, when we hear that and say that and feel that, have found a way to miss you and what you really choose to offer. So this day, would we uh, open our hearts to you, Holy Spirit, because you long to change us from lives of busyness where where the gears are moving and accomplishing things to slowing down and remembering you're a God who loves us and, and asks us to enter into rest. We pray Christ in your name. Amen. So first, the elements of rest. In these uh, in this passage, Jesus shows us elements of rest. And there's a longer passage like Emily and Lee read but there's kind of four vignettes, four scenes, four little stories that all point and show us elements that involves rest. And so in this first episode, starting in verse 13, we'll go through each one real quick. It said, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him and was teaching them. He was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus, at his, oh, with Jesus and his disciples. 
for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The first element of rest we see here is that Jesus involves you. That Jesus comes to you and finds you exactly where you are and offers you rest at that moment. He doesn't say, clean yourself up, uh, check off some prerequisite. He says, I'm going to find you where you are and invite you and call you in to rest. Levi uh, lived a pretty scummy life because he was a tax collector. And in that day, uh, he was a Jewish tax collector, so he was a Jew, but he worked for and was paid by the occupied pagan enemy government, the Romans. And the Romans employed uh, these people to collect taxes, but also uh, left them the freedom to uh, put the price a little higher and, and line their own pockets and, and live pretty well. And Jesus sees Levi and says, come and follow me. And he does. And that the king of heaven and earth has come and says, I see you where you are in the societal scummy life that you live and means that you make. And says, leave that behind. Because what I have to offer is so much more. And you have to believe that Levi believed something that what Jesus offered, his story was better than the story he was in then. All points to the fact that Jesus involves himself in your life where you are right now. But when he calls people, he doesn't say, um, put some paint on it and fix it up. But, but, but he says, you, the real you, I want that. Because actually he can do much with that. He meets someone in the societal outskirts and pushed away. And the people who really are not beautiful, the out and the ailing, the sick, because those people need a physician. And Jesus says, I've come to offer life to them. And it disgusts his enemies. And so this morning, what is something that King Jesus is asking you to where you are right now and says, I invite you to leave that, to come and follow me. Because maybe uh, my story is better than that. He invites you in to believe something as wild as that. In the second episode, we see how Jesus is um, addressing the topic of fasting. If you look with me in verse 18, it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? But as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the, old, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Once a year, the Jews in that time were asked uh, to fast. 
one day a year. They're supposed to fast, not eat. It was the Day of Atonement where, where their sins were atoned for and, and they took serious um, who they were and how they were and they were contemplative and, and all these different things. And the Pharisees took that idea and said, we want to ramp it up a little bit. And so they made uh, uh, fasting a norm for two days a week. Every week it would fast for two days, not just once a year, two days. And Jesus is reminding them how much they've ramped it up only to miss him because he's showing them another element of rest. And it's that the rest that Jesus offers is of joy and not drudgery. That he offers joy because he, the king, has come and, and there's feasting, not fasting. There's a time for that. And he says, I've come for, so that my people can feast. Joy, wedding celebration, he uses the analogy of cloth and wineskin. And, and if you're familiar with the Bible, maybe you've heard this before, and it's kind of a biblical term where it's like, I, I have no recollection or category for what you're talking about. And that's okay. I'm not a seamstress, nor am I a winemaker. But, but in that day, uh, if a pair of jeans, a um, pair of Levi's back in uh, Jerusalem would shrink, you wouldn't put an unshrunk patch on the shrunk pair because... Then, when you wash them, the new patch would shrink, rip away, because the old cannot contain the new. And with wine, what happens with wine is they would put unexpanded new wine into a wineskin, and a reaction would happen, and CO2 would be released, and it would stretch the wineskin out. And the wine's ready. So you're not supposed to take a stretched out old wineskin and put new wine in it, so a new reaction happens and expands too much and breaks it. The old can't contain the new. And Jesus is saying, your old laws cannot contain the joy that I'm bringing. That the, the real deal is here, and yet you would rather self-righteously pine for something, and that something is right in front of you, and you're missing it. He's saying, and inviting them into seeing who he has come to offer life to, the sick, and what he's come to give joy and not drudgery that the true rest of christ says life is a party because you're so safe element of rest of joy and not drudgery in the third episode the third vignette talking about the sabbath in verse 23 one sabbath he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way his disciples began to pluck heads of grain then the pharisees were saying to him look why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you ever never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Ab Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. What element of rest is he showing us? That he's come with a kingdom as a king, and a part of that kingdom is that there is margin for you. We'll talk about it a little more in a second, but, but you are not uh, characterized and known for what you produce, but in fact, you have margin to rest because of the fact that 
He is Lord of the Sabbath. And to truly rest means you don't have to do anything that, that, that violates the fact that says, I have margin because I belong to someone who's given me margin. I'm someone who tends to, to compress a schedule, and, and some days I have to know to the minute where I'm going and where I have to be. And Jesus reminds us and frees us to believe we have margin. We, we, we belong to someone, therefore we are greater than what we produce. And he tells this story about King David, uh, who is with his closest friends. And at the time of that story in the Old Testament, uh, David had been anointed king, and yet he was not uh, on the throne yet. In fact, his predecessor Saul was on the throne, and, and his predecessor Saul was his enemy and was trying to kill King David, this newly anointed king. And then this Sabbath thing happens with the bread and everything. And Jesus is telling that story because actually, as we've seen in the past couple of verses and chapters, in his birth and baptism, it's been explicitly mentioned that Jesus is the king that God has sent and anointed, and yet he has enemies who are longing to kill him. He's saying, I'm not just someone who likes Sabbath and wants to offer you rest and margin, but I'm the true king. I'm the one that you're trying to kill, but, but I've been anointed by God and he sent me here. And a part of him sending me here is to tell you, rest, rest. And don't be captive to conventions that violate the thought that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and the Lord of margin for his people. And in this last episode, in this last vignette, in episode four, um, it says this, starting in verse one of chapter three. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their, at their hardness of heart. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees immediately went out, uh, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus has been having these conversations with the Pharisees and, and enemies and adversaries. And in this episode, he finally says, we're taking this public. And he's in the temple, in the synagogue, and he says there's a man with a withered hand, and he's talking to the Pharisees and say, is it good to heal this man, to restore him? Is it good to kill or to, to, to offer life and save? If they say it's good to kill, then it's really not, you don't want to be a part of them. And if you say it's good to heal him, you should heal him, that would go against their own laws they've created. And so they just don't say anything. And Jesus finally makes it clear, I have come to offer life. Boom, healed. And that thing doesn't fit in the economy of merit and the economy of life and achievement that the Pharisees have. Therefore, they'll go and collude with their enemy to destroy their enemy. They so are tired of Jesus, they say, we're going to kill him. We're going we're gonna, to uh, throw away conviction. 
all to partner with our enemy to kill our enemy. And this last element of rest that we see here shows us that Jesus not only uh, involves us and comes and finds us, and he doesn't just say, here's joy, enter into the joy. He doesn't just say, here's margin for you. He also asks us to examine our own heart and how we might have grown hard to those around us, even him. You know how this is in real life. Um, There are people around us that we know and love or know. And it could be a peer at work, a colleague. It could be someone in our home, uh, whether it's a a wife or a a husband or a child. It could be uh, someone far, far away that we have no attachment to or have never met before, someone who's a public figure. Whatever it may be, it doesn't matter what good they do for others or for you, it's never good enough. Right? You, you could say, hey, I, I, I bought you some cereal from the grocery store. And they'll quickly tell you that that is not their favorite cereal and you screwed up. Right? You can quickly imagine in your own life how the hardness of heart makes itself known and how you relate to others and how they have been the exception to every rule in the way that they've wrong, they're wrong. That what they do is never good enough You'll never find pleasure. In fact, you always uh, look for exhibitions of displeasure toward them because your heart is so hardened to who they are and what they do. And Jesus is saying, to really truly rest, you need to know how you've closed your heart off from the people around you. Because as long as you have a hardened heart, your heart will be busy when you slow down with the thought of how much you are displeased with others. Elements of rest that Jesus tell us and invite us into asks much of. It involves us. It's joy, not drudgery. It's not regulations, but margin. And it's, it's also self-examination. So why don't we choose those things? Why not those good things that, that are uh, beautiful and transformative? And that's because of the enemy of rest. The enemy of rest. Because so long... Uh, in our lives, we often meet Jesus if we are Christians and, and we're transformed and we become Christians. And at that point, we just camp out at that experience and exist there. And oftentimes it can be easy to just have the title of belonging to Christ because we build these systems of self-pride that allow us and give us allowance against others. And here we see the enemy of rest in these four vignettes in the people who are antagonists, the Pharisees. There are people who who, uh, don't abandon their pride, that don't abandon their systems, but in fact uh, miss Jesus in a climactic way. Scene one, they say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Scene two, they ask, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but not uh, your disciples do not fast? Scene three, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And then finally, at the very last verse of the passage, it says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Their disposition is so against Jesus because Jesus doesn't fit into their system of merit and allowing themselves to be something. 
do something to be someone who is worthy of worth. Jesus does not play along with their rules. They assumed and assuming are perturbed because of that. And here we see uh, that they're actually going to violate their convictions to kill Jesus. The enemy of true rest is when we say we are creating a standard and we will live up to that standard and anyone who does not will be second-rate citizens. Anyone who does not uh, accommodate that standard in all of life is our enemy. True rest finds its enemy when we say we create the standards of merit and of accomplishment and of being valuable. We can control it then. One songwriter put it this way. He said, I looked at the world through the eyes of a mask and compared myself with some fuzzy math to stake my claim on higher ground. We create grids, economies, and say other people fit into it or else you are second rate. You're out. You're not enough. Uh, there's a famous movie, Chariots of Fire. It's, it's very old and it's a very good movie. I certainly encourage you to watch it. Uh, that features Eric Liddell, who uh, was an Olympic runner and later a missionary. And, and it's a, a story how he um, overcame greatly with, in light of his convictions and, and beliefs and would um, run in races in the Olympics that he didn't even train for and he would blow people out of the water, stuff like that. But there's a scene in that movie where uh, his opponent... Uh, named Harold Abrams, uh, talks about how he keeps on being beat by this person who hasn't even trained for the races he's running in. And how this person keeps beating him and, and, and he's grappling with the fact that he's worked so hard and he's about to go out again to another Olympic race and maybe lose. And here's what he said as he's talking to a friend preparing for the next race. He said, I'm scared. We've labored around and bullied for this day in, day out. You've seen us. Chuckled over us, I'll be bound, out in all weathers, maddening for what? I was beaten out of sight in the 200 and was tricked in the semi. And now in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? I've known the fear of losing, but now I'm afraid, almost too, too frightened to win. Harold Abrams is a great runner. He's at the Olympics, and he's trained so hard to get there and be the best. And in fact, he's tasted loss. He's tasted what, what it feels like to lose at the thing you've worked so hard for. And that's such a great fear of his. He's lived his whole life, orchestrated everything around the fact that he wants to be the best and be worthy of worth, and he's, he's not felt it. And what's the only thing greater than that fear in him is the fact that, what if I actually win this race? What if I get what I want and I realize I'll be miserable? That everything I've worked for is a house of cards. It's all a sham for nothing. And the enemy of true rest, and we, when we realize our whole entire system of living, of being uh, worthy of worth, is all a sham. And we're so afraid, not even just to lose, but just to try sometimes. 
because sometimes uh, trying hurts more than the, even the pain of losing. And we get everything we want. And there's something in us that resists Jesus' offer to rest, and we choose that. Uh, one book that we were supposed to read in high school and didn't was East of Eden. And John Steinbeck said, indeed, most of their vices are attempted shortcuts to love. We can look at our lives and say, I'm really trying for good things. And yet it's getting inverted and things are just falling apart. I'm trying to do good. I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to, to do right and, and to help the people around me. And, and yet oftentimes those systems show us there's more vice in our efforts than real pursuit of love. And here Jesus is reminding the Pharisees how they've been exclusively shunning people out to the point that they're going to kill the person who offers real true rest for the sake of their system because they fit in their system. And Jesus is calling them out of it. That Harold Abrams is filled with anxious self-doubt that, that actually he's crippled by it. Because his system hasn't worked. Friends, what is the four-foot-wide corridor and the ten seconds in your life that you ask to justify everything about you? The system of your life that, that often feels more like vice than true love. Where in your life are you asking something to say, just tell me I'm worthy of worth? Because Jesus is actually in that question and he can make that question real and fruitful and palatable as he calls you into his rest. What is your four-foot corridor, the 10 seconds? Oftentimes it can be the things we strive for, the things we want. We want not just entry-level jobs, but, but perks and, and flares with jobs, not just friends, but one with connections and status, uh, not just grad school, but, but the best one, so we're not ordinary. The things that we strive for and want and want and want. But also it can be in the things uh, that we apologize for and avoid. That, that actually we have these corridors and, and 10 seconds that um, we are ashamed of because we know we haven't lived up to it. That our job is just temporary. We're just living here in this part of town for just a, a little bit. That, that I'm not married, but, but actually I'm so lonely. Or I am married, but I'm miserable. But I have these dreams that have been deferred. Jesus can do much with the fact that we have these corridors and we finally say, I just can't do it anymore. That's when you're more like the tax collectors and sinners than the self-righteous Pharisees. So, how do we enter true rest? And we'll land the plane here. How do we enter true rest? If there's elements of rest that, that it involves us and that we're, we're, um, we're worthy of worth because Christ has come to give us margin and show us love and joy, not drudgery, and also self-examination, all those things. And yet we choose the enemy of rest, the systems. How do we enter into true rest? In the Old Testament... The, the Israelites, God's people, were in Egypt, and they were slaves for 400 years. And they went, and Moses uh, led the people out of Israel through the Red Sea, the, the story we 
Moses must know. And it's a miraculous story of deliverance and power and how um, the lamb was over the, the door, all these different things. And they're on the other side of the Red Sea, recovering slaves and now refugees going to the new, new, new land. And Moses writes uh, the first five books of the Old Testament to tell these new refugees and recovering slaves what their God is like. And, and he starts off with saying, in the beginning, God created everything. Pharaoh didn't, God did. In the beginning, uh, actually, God made all these different things, and he actually made you in his image. He shared his image with you. There wasn't a dichotomy between Pharaoh and you. And he says, on the last day of the week, God saw everything he made, and he rested. It's not hard to think after 400 years, generational slavery, that these people thought, as they worked for God, Pharaoh, that they were only as good as the things they produce. And maybe what Jesus has brought me here to tell you right now is that you, where you are, are not bound by the status and value of what you produce. But the high king has come and said, I'm going to find you exactly where you are because you are worthy of worth right now. Because Jesus can do much with the broken things in your life and in my life, more than we ever could as we input them into our systems of merit and value. The Old Testament audience that's newly freed slaves and the modern audience that's allergic to contentment were reminded the king has come to offer rest. To say no to our systems of value and merit and economies for his. One person said that Sabbath is to cease not only from work itself but also from the need to accomplish and be productive, from worry and tension that accompany our modern criterion of efficiency, from our efforts to be in control of our lives as if we were God. Where he finds you is not where he leaves you, and yet the road from A to B is a long one, and one of which where he does the work on us as we experience rest in the king because the God of all things became nothing to make you great. The God of all things made himself nothing because he thought everything of you and you are worthy of worth. The last words of Buddha was strive without ceasing. Strive without ceasing. Don't stop. It is finished. The king on a cross says, it's all done. Everything you need for life, for hope, for love has been accomplished. Rest in the fact that the king has come for you. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at the four feet wide corridors and the 10 seconds of our lives, the things that we ask to speak to us meaning, may we enter into dialogue and we tell it that it is finished. 
because we belong to the high king, because we are ones who are, are ransomed and rescued and restored. And Lord, would you take us from our tax booths and call us out to leave that behind for you? And Lord, would you tell us this day that you've come to not have us have drudgery, but to feast with us with joy? And Lord, would you show us that you've come to take our withered hands and to heal it because you are about life and not death. In it all, may we learn more and more, you are the king and we are not. And we are so grateful that the kingdom involves people as rotten and broken as us because you make those things and those people beautiful by the power of the cross. We pray Christ in your name. Amen not and we are so grateful that the kingdom involves people as rotten and broken as us because you make those things and those people beautiful by the power of the cross we pray christ in your name amen